0: We can turn with me your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2, we'll finish Matthew's nativity story. Uh, we'll read verses 13 through 23, and we'll look at verses 13 through 23. So Matthew, chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 13. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for that plan of redemption, and thank you that Christ really is the fulfillment of all the promises of the law and the prophets. Thank you that he is our Israel, thank you that he is our hope, and we are thankful that he is our branch. Thank you that he is the king who conquers. Thank you that he is the one who suffers in our stead. And we're thankful that he is the one who redeems his people uh, from bondage to sin. Thank you that this is what Christ does. Thank you that this is what he came to do to save his people from their sins. And even in the midst of great sin and sorrow, even in the midst of such sadness in this present evil age, there is hope. There is a light. There is forgiveness. And that is found in Christ the Lord. Christ, the King, saying that he is that savior who was born in the city of David, saying that he is the one who came to save. And we pray, oh God, that we would know this all the more, be uh, in awe of it all the more as we consider what Christ has done for wretched sinners like us. So we ask again, O Lord of hosts, that you would give us the Spirit. We ask, O God most high, that you would give us the Spirit this Lord's Day morning to better understand uh, what it is you have for us in your word. There are so many things we do not understand about your word, but give us that understanding that we need. So we pray that you would be pleased to strengthen your saints. We pray that you'd be pleased to save sinners and we pray that you be pleased to uh, be glorified in our midst this day. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I know I've know, I mentioned this a lot when it comes to Christmas time sermons, but the reality is, at Christmas time, for most people, it is not the most wonderful time. Of the year i probably mentioned this before as well. whenever I go to Costco or Superstore, everybody seems grouchy and grumpy. nobody 's holly or jolly they 're all sour and grouchy rather than happy to be you know shopping at Christmas time. Now, perhaps before I pass judgment, maybe i don't know the whole story of what that person's going through in their life. Perhaps they 've lost a loved one and have to deal with that this Christmas. Perhaps they are going through some strife at home, or perhaps they're struggling financially or at any sort of other strife and problem that this world gives to everyone in this world. Because let's be honest, most of the time Christmas is not a wonderful time. And even when the Savior was born, it wasn't always holly jolly. The Savior himself as a young child had to flee danger. He had to flee from Herod. He had to go into exile away from his homeland, even as a child of perhaps two years old. And what this shows us is the problem of sin, the problem of danger, the problem of tyrant kings. And that problem is in the forefront with Herod the tyrant. Herod had hatred for his rival, he had hatred for the one who would be born the king of the Jews, and his hatred is on full display for us in these verses. And really it shows how wicked man truly is. But we must also consider not just the hatred of Herod, but the plight and problem of Israel as a whole. Israel is in bondage. Israel is under Rome. Israel is not their own country. And let's ask the question, the question that ought to be raised is, why are they in bondage? And is it not because of their own sinfulness, because of their own waywardness, because of their own wickedness? Man really is desperately wicked. Man really is the most dangerous animal in this world because of sin. And we see that danger on display in these verses. In Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23, Matthew wants us to see all the danger of the young Savior endures. He wants to see it as a fulfillment of prophecy. Even though we might be fearful, even though it is a fearful time for Joseph, we know as we read this that God is bringing about his purposes and promises for the salvation of sinners, even in the midst of Herod, The tyrant. And so we'll look at this idea of the danger the child flees or the fulfillment of prophecy under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see our Israel in Egypt, verses 13 through 15. Secondly, we'll see our hope for Ramah, verses 16 through 18. Then lastly, we'll see our branch in Nazareth in verses 19 through 23. So our Israel in Egypt, our hope for Ramah, and our branch in Nazareth. Now, as we consider this passage in light of the others, perhaps we could say in verses 1 through 25, we see what Jesus does. He came to save. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we see who he saves, Jews and Gentiles. Then in verses 13 through 23, we see how he saves. What he does, he came to save who he came to save and how it is he brings about that salvation for his people. And I think we see that here in verses 13 through 23. So let's first look at our Israel and Egypt in verses 13 through 15. And notice we see the angels warning once again, in verse 13 in light of the danger of Herod. So we read verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that is the wise men, the wise men came from afar to worship the one true King, and after they had found the one true king and rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, they were warned in a, in a, uh, divinely to flee to their own country another way and not go back to Herod. And so they depart another way and behold, another behold, a lot of beholds in chapters one and two. Behold an angel, behold wise men, behold a star and behold the angel once again. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, probably likely the same angel from chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And notice we see the divine warning he gives. Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. The reason he says young child first is because the child is of utmost importance. Yes, we don't want Mary or Joseph to die, but there are big problems if the child dies, humanly speaking. So the child more than anyone needs to be protected. Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Remain there until I tell you remain there until I say, don't sneak back. Wait till I appear to you once again. So he tells the Joseph to flee to Egypt. There's a very practical reason that is Egypt is close by and it's out of Herod's jurisdiction. But again, the theological reason is the importance of this one who is the young child. So arise, take your son, flee to Egypt. The reason being Herod, the wicked tyrant, seeks the young child in order to destroy him. Now, again, in the narrative, if you are reading it for the first time, this is the first inkling Maybe you had some suspicion beforehand because you're suspicious of every type of government, but perhaps, uh, but this is the first explicit reference that Herod is going to kill the young child. If you're reading along, you might be a little bit duped. Herod says he wants to come worship the king. Herod says he wants to come and the wise men to bring word back that he might go and bring gifts. But now we know explicitly from the angel, a divine warning that says, do not go to Herod or flee because Herod is going to want to destroy this one who is your son. And Joseph, as we've already seen, being a just man, he obeys. Verse 14, he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night. Even though it's a divine warning, they still flee under the cover of darkness. There's still wisdom on the time to flee, and they flee right away by night. uh, And they depart for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. He does all that the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. And then notice what Matthew relays for us. That it might be, verse 15, fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. This is from Hosea chapter 11. And in God's providence, I just turned right there as I flipped the page, Hosea 11 verses 1 through 11. And this comes specifically from chapter 11, verse 1. Where God's speaking to Israel. Remember, Hosea is speaking to the northern kingdom. Remember, there's the divided kingdom. Hosea is speaking and prophesying to the north. Isaiah and uh, Micah are to the south. Hosea and Amos are to the north. They're all at the same time or around the same time, just in different regions. Remember, the northern kingdom of Israel, always bad, always bad kings. No good king, no kings whatsoever. There were some good kings in the south in Judah, but in Israel, they were all bad kings. And so as God speaks and prophesies to them about the coming exile or to Assyria, which will really be back to Egypt, what he's trying to highlight is what God had done for Israel when he redeemed them. Verse 1 of Hosea 11:1 or Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. There's image in God's word with Old Covenant Israel and God as father and son. And that image is then transferred from God the father with his church. Obviously, there's God the father, the eternal father, and God the eternal son. But certainly in the Bible, the church is considered, uh, we call upon him as our father, as we are sons and daughters. But that image was for Israel first in the Old Testament. It points to something greater. And so when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I brought them as uh, he made those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I heard their cry in Exodus 2, and I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. But how wayward were they? Verse 2, as they called them, so they went for them. That is, as the Baals, or as the Molechs, or as the gods of the other nations called, so then went the people after them. Israel quickly engages in idolatry, quickly rebels against their father. They sacrificed to the bales and burn incense. I taught him this image of a father caring for his child. I taught Ephraim to walk. I took him by their arm, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bonds of love, and I was to them as those who took the yoke from their neck. I stooped down and I fed them. And throughout the book of Hosea, it's all about Israel's idolatry and wickedness and violating the covenants that they had made with God Almighty, how wicked Israel was. And it's so wicked that God tells the prophet Hosea to marry a lady named Gomer, who uh, who, who would produce children of harlotry. Gomer would cheat on Hosea. Gomer would have children that are not Hosea's. The first one probably is Hosea's. The latter two are probably are not his children. And that is a very potent image to highlight what Israel was doing, how wicked they were against God. But even in the midst, and it talks about how they are backsliding. They went away in verses five through six. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but... The Assyrians shall be his king. That is, they won't necessarily go back to Egypt, but they'll still go back into exile. They will go back to a place of bondage, which they do. And it's what's hap- which, uh, what occurs in 722 BC when Assyria takes the northern kingdom. So exile, destruction, despair is all in view of Hosea chapter 11. But thankfully there's Hosea 11 verses eight and following about how can I give you up? O Ephraim. How can I hand you over Israel? How can I make you like Sodom and Gomorrah? That's what Adma and Zeboi means Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. He goes on to further talk about how he would walk amongst them, how he is in their midst and, Then you have all that in view, and then you come back to Matthew chapter 2. Out of Egypt I called my son. You see, when the Old Testament quote, or the New Testament quotes Old Testament passages, it's not just verse 1 that's in view. It's the entire section that is in view for us. And there are are many reversals promised in Hosea. Those who are not my people, that was one of the names of the children. Well, in Hosea 2, God is going to bring a people who are not my people. In Israel, who was once a son, they will be sent into captivity because of their wickedness. But there's going to be a son who redeems them. There's going to be a son who releases them. There's going to be a son who gives them a redemption from their bondage. Because the Exodus is a type of Christ. The people in Egypt is a type of what Christ would endure The exodus of temporal bondage points ahead to Christ who redeems his people from spiritual bondage. You see, we can't miss the old covenant imagery going on here and seeing its fulfillment in the work of the one who is the son. As he goes into Egypt, even as a young child out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel was the firstborn child and was supposed to spread God's glory, but they failed So now here comes the true Israel, the type of Israel as a type of Christ points to this one. He would be the one who brings redemption and restoration in its full and restoration in a spiritual sense. So the Exodus is a type of Christ. Israel is a type of Christ. We'll see David's a type of Christ. There are many types of Christ. Types are just copies of the image. They're all pointing to the one who is the original, copies of the original, pointing to the one that they look ahead to. And Christ is that original. If you want to know what the Bible is about, you just say Jesus. You want to know what the Old Testament is about, you just say Jesus. They all point, all the law and the prophets, institutions, events, peoples, all point to him. And Matthew wants us to see that he is doing in a far greater way and bringing a far greater restoration than what Israel experienced under the Exodus, than what Israel experienced in the return from exile. It all comes from this one out of Egypt. I called my son. And so how does he save then? He saves by redeeming from bondage. In fact, that's the language we use when it comes to our salvation. When we think about Christ's cross work and all that he did, does for us, there are many different words we use to describe what he has done. Atonement, atoning, that is being that sacrifice for us in our stead, that bearing the penalty upon himself, language of reconciliation. God who once alienated himself from us has reconciled us to him. And another one is redemption. Now, redemption has slave type language. That is, we were once slaves to sin, And now we are freed. (laughs) Now we've been released from our shackles. We've been released from our sin. We've been released from that bondage. And now we are slaves to righteousness. That's what this son would do when he saves his people from their sins. We were once in shackles and now our shackles have been released because of what he has done. Paul uses this language of redemption throughout his letters, especially in the book of Romans. But if you believed on Christ... You are redeemed. And when I say you are redeemed, it means you're no longer a slave to your sin. But if you're not in Christ, you are a slave to your sin. The only way to find forgiveness and release from that is in Jesus. If you believe upon him, sin is a great problem. Sin is a massive issue, but it's what God does to save his people. He redeems us from our bondage to sin. That's how we see his love for us. And in fact, Paul or John brings these ideas together in 1 John chapter 4 when he says, It's not that we love God, but God loved us and sent forth his son to be a propitiation. Propitiation is all about that sacrifice, all about that atonement, all about that idea of it's not quite redemption, but certainly atonement, but shows forth God's love for us that he sent forth his son to die in our Stead. So that's how he saves. That's how he loves. He is Israel for us, that we might be Israel in him. He truly is our Israel in Egypt. So that's then moved then to look at our hope for Ramah, and locations play an important role here: Egypt, Ramah, and Nazareth. So our hope for Ramah in verses 16 through 18. This is the sad part of Christmas. Verses 16 through 18. We see that tyrants rage on display in full here, and probably we could say verses 13, 16 through 18 still go with verses 13 through 15 but there's a lot here so we that's why I split it up for us but notice we see this Edomite who can't stand being taken for a ride. Remember, the true king is going to come from Judah. He's an Edomite. He does not have claim to the throne. That is David's son who has claim to the throne. And so that Edomite understands that, and he's not going to submit to that. He wants to kill his rival like any petty tyrant would. Let's be honest. Most tyrants are insecure, right? (laughs) They have their power, and they don't want it to be taken away. And so they'll do anything to protect it, and they grow insecure. And so what does he do? So he says, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts. You see, we know that his purpose for learning about the prophecy was not to worship him, but he used that information to try and just have this blanket decree to try and take out all the male children who would be two and under. He determines from the star how old the, the the Savior would be, and uses that to try and thwart and take out these males under two, and in the surround in Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas. Spurgeon said, "Men will do anything to be rid of Jesus. They care not how many children or men or women are destroyed, so that they can be they can but resist His kingdom and crush His holy cause in its infancy. Yet vain is their rage. The holy child is beyond their jurisdiction and their." Sword. And so this is what happens as the young child flees, several other young children are killed. Now, before we all get in our, you know, philosophical questioning, how could they, how could this happen? Well, it simply happened, brethren. There is evil and wickedness in this world, and the son, the savior, was in great danger and had to flee. And so they fled and yet other young boys were killed in that area. Now, if it makes it feel any better, France says based on the population might only been 20 males. Now, I know 20 children are still 20 too many, but perhaps sometimes we read that and think it's a bajillion, but it's still sad. It's still terrible. It's still awful with what occurs. But this also has reminisce reminisces and alludes to another event in Israel's history. Think of when Moses was born. They didn't want all the Hebrew boys to keep growing or the Hebrews to keep increasing. So there's a decree of Pharaoh. Again, we can't miss the Moses exile type connections between what Jesus does as a fulfillment of uh, as, a, as a, uh, the greater Moses who comes. That certainly comes into play with the Sermon on the Mount more, but that illusion certainly st- is still there. What happens, though, is what Herod does is wicked what Herod does is terrible. It is awful, but the child has fled and the child's fleeing is going to bring consolation and hope because there is a fulfillment here. And we see that in verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah lamentation, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is from Jeremiah 31, and we read that at the outset. And again, remember, we don't just have the verse in view, or Matthew doesn't just have the uh, single verse in view. He has the entire section in view. And in the book of Jeremiah, especially chapter 31 this chapter 31, really 31 through 34, is about the book of consolation. There's a lot of problems in Israel, our Judah at this point. There's a lot of issues in that southern kingdom. There's going to be judgment that comes, but there is this book of consolation between. And they in the middle, sorry. And certainly we have the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. But we also have this prophecy and this discussion about redemption that shall come not just for the southern kingdom, but for the northern kingdom as well. So again, the northern kingdom is probably in view, even though Jeremiah's prophesying to the southern kingdom. But we see in verse 15, what is quoted explicitly by Matthew. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, what's in view here is the reality of exile once again. And we see here Rachel, that is the wife of Jacob, being personified. Rachel cried a lot. Rachel loved her children. She died as she was in childbirth. We see this in Genesis chapter 35. And so she is personified as the one who is weeping for her children because they are no more. And so these locations are. This location is important as well. Ramah and Bethlehem are not the same place, but they're along the same road. And there, perhaps it is the case that Rachel was buried right between Bethlehem and Ramah. That could be why Ramah is mentioned. But another reason Ramah is mentioned is because Ramah was on the road to war and the road to Babylon. Do you see the image here? Mother's sons are going off to battle. Brother's sons are going to fight the northern invaders, and they're not going to return That's the last point that they would see before they go. The last checkpoint along the way it's also the road to exile as well when the people were taken, that would be the road that they would take. They would go through Ramah from Bethlehem to Ramah all the way up and over I guess all the way up and over to Babylon as they were taken into Cap. Activity. But the reality of exile is in view here. She can't, she's uh, refused. Their, their children are gone. Their children are no more. There is great despair when it comes to exile. Thankfully, God gives us hope in the midst of bereavements. There is sadness and sorrow in this world, but God gives us hope in that bereavement. And we see that in verses 16 through 22. Refrain your voice from weeping. He's reversing what is gone on. Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. For they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord. Take your children, come back to their own border. And the reason they were sent away is, again, because of their wickedness and because of their sin. We see that in verses 18 through 20. He's uh, Ephraim is confessing sin. We even see this return language. Verse 21, set up the signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway. They're coming back the same way that they left. They were once in exile. Now they're returning. There is hope in the midst of the exile. There is going to be restoration for the people when they come. He who was once dead will be restored. So then how do we take it with Matthew chapter 2? Well, perhaps the hope is that the one who fled this killing is the one who is Israel's hope and consolation. The one who brings hope in the midst of bereavement. Christ himself will die, not yet, but he will die that those who are dead may live. There will be hope. There'll be everlasting life There will be everlasting peace that comes from the one who fled Herod's decree. And this was to fulfill what Jeremiah the prophet had said. Tough passage, but nonetheless, there is hope in the midst of sorrow that God's people endure. And thankfully here, we also again see how he saves. Christ saves by suffering. He learned obedience, according to the, the writer of the Hebrews. And when we say he learned obedience, it means he learned to suffer. That is, he's still perfect in every way, but he learned the, the, what it means to obey in the midst of suffering. That is, this life is full of sorrow and sadness for all, but especially for those who are in Christ, because the world hates those who are in Christ. Those who are in the world hated Christ himself and they persecuted him. And he's going to suffer. We see his suffering right away. He has to flee his home. He's got to go into exile. He's got to go away. He's going to suffer on behalf of his people. Now, thankfully, this gives us great comfort when we suffer. We are redeemed, we are changed, we are saved, but there is still this present evil age that we have to endure. That's why it's called a momentary light affliction. It's still affliction, even if it's momentary and light, but it is still affliction. It is still sorrow. It is still hardship, but it's not going to last forever. There is pain in this world, but there is comfort. Our sins have been forgiven, but also the one who has forgiven our sins is with us. He gives promises He gives consolation. He gives words of comfort to those who are in need, like he did to Ephraim, like he did to Rachel's children in Jeremiah 31. And the message of hope, the message of encouragement, the message of comfort is that Christ is the one who endured on our stead. And I really liked what hymn 157 stands at three stead. Did you pay attention as we were singing it? And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Christ's coming is for those who are weary. Christ's coming is for those who are in need. Christ's coming is to give hope in the midst of bereavement, and he is our hope for Rama. Let's then move again, then uh, thirdly, to look at our branch in Nazareth in verses 19 through 23. So we see the direction to return in verses 19 and 21. Joseph obeys. Joseph does not leave. Joseph does not take matter into his own hands. He waited upon the Lord. Verse 19. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother. And go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Almost verbatim to what he had said before, just the reversal. Then he arose, and like, jo- like we've seen with Joseph, he arose, he obeys, he takes the young child and his mother, and they came into the land of Israel. They were once in, ca- once in exile, and now they've come back into the promised land. But there's still problems in verse 22. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. There's still problem. There is still fear. There is still some concern. And Joseph had that fear, like any good father would when there's a tyrant seeking to kill uh, your son. And thankfully, God in his goodness gives peace and direction. Verse 22. Being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside to the region of Galilee. Notice there's the fear first, and then God gives the answer. Now, it may not always be the case where we hear a word from, or it's, not, it's never the case where we hear a word from God, but we hear a word from God and hear that he warns us and encourages us and gives us comfort, but God is pleased to give us the word we need in great times of difficulty, and he's fearful, and God provides. Yeah, don't go into Bethlehem, but go to the region of Galilee. Turn aside and go to this place. Be in obscurity. That's a, a difficult thing for us today with Facebook and TikTok and Twitter. Obscurity is better than being known by everybody, right? Obscurity, just living our life, just doing what we're supposed to do, just nobody needing to know everything that goes on. That's the best thing, I think, for us all in life. Obscurity is far better than being famous. Now, Jesus, of course, he's the son of God and but he does he 30 years he toils, 30 years he 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 lives, 30 years he acts as a car, he's a carpenter for 30 years until he the appointed time when his ministry starts, when he's 30. But he goes there, he remains there, he grows up there, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Plenty of divine direction, but plenty of providential promptings as well. And then notice this also fulfills something. Verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. It's a bit of an odd fulfillment, because if you know your Bibles well, you know that none of the prophets ever say something like that. So what is going on here? Perhaps what it is, I think there are three passages probably in view, but perhaps what it is, is it's meant to be a summary of all that we've seen in chapters one and two. That is, he's highlighting that all the prophets point to this one, even in the place where he is born, as he is called the Nazarene. France says this suggests that it is not meant to be a quotation of a specific passage, but a summary of a theme of prophetic expectation. That is, as Matthew 1 and 2 comes to a close, he ends on this general reference that all the prophets pointed to him. This was to fulfill what the prophet said. He shall be called a Nazarene. But now, as I said, there are, I think, three passages that I think are in view here. I think one of them is Judges 13, verse 7. This is the talk of Samson Although the word for, uh, we see Nazarene, the word for Nazarite, it's not quite the same Nazar, but it could be there in view. Judges 13, 7, when Samson is called to be a Nazarite. Now, a lot of us rip on Samson. I'm going to dispel that tonight when we talk about Samson, about his life and some of the things he endured. But Samson, whatever you think of Samson, he is a type of Christ, is he not? He is a judge. He is a deliverer. He is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He had faith, but he, he points to Christ who would conquer, who would be the deliverer, the one who is filled with the spirit. So Samson is a type of Christ that could perhaps be in view in Matthew chapter two. Another place is in Isaiah 53 verse two. The, the latter two are in Isaiah, but Isaiah 53 three two. Again, when the servant songs come on the scene, it's all about looking ahead to exile. Again, the theme of exile is in view once again, the people being away from their homeland. And we see, we've seen two out of the four servant songs recently. This is the last of the servant songs, the largest of the servant songs, the suffering he would endure. And notice he's obscure. Verse two, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. That word could be similar to Nazarene. Perhaps Nazar branch is similar to Nazarene. Perhaps there's a play on words going on there. He's going to be a tender plant. He shall grow up before him as that. And as a root out of dry ground, there's no former comeliness about him. That is, it's unexpected. You see, Naz- uh, Nazareth was a small place, wasn't it? Nazareth was an insignificant place. It was not a place you'd think a king would come from. So there's no form or comeliness about this one. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. We kind of have to shut our mouths. Verse 15 of 52, kings shall shut their mouths at him. This this is different than what we thought he would be, but nonetheless, it is the word of God To bring about, or it is he who is the word of God, the son would bring that salvation according to God's plan. So he's this tender plant. He is this, uh, he he comes from this obscure place. But perhaps also Isaiah 1, sorry, 11 verses 1 through 11 is in view as well. Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch. Again, Nazar, Nazarene. There's probably a play on words there with Nazarene. That is the one who is the branch is the one who comes from Nazareth. And the one who is the branch was the one that the remnant longed for as they went into exile. The image of stump is the idea of desolation. The trees have been cut off, but there's going to be a shoot that comes up. There's going to be a branch that comes up from Jesse and that branch that comes up is Christ. It is David's greater son. And so we see, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, the spirit or the twig or the, 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 the the branch, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That is, he shall conquer and bring a kingdom that is greater than anything we could have imagined. He shall bring peace where the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. He shall bring peace where the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, where the, the, the little child shall lead the young lion and the leopard. There's going to be great peace that he is going to bring. He's going to be a banner to the Gentiles. He's going to bring great salvation. People from all, all, uh, all the ends of the earth shall come to him. He's going to be a great king. So what this highlights in Matthew's gospel is that, again, as I said, it's a summary of all the prophetic expectation. But again, it perhaps has those three specific in view, a spirit-filled man, a man who comes from an unexpected place, and one who will bring in a great kingdom as the hope of his people. But all this is meant to highlight that Jesus is the one who fulfills all the law and the prophets. All of these verses in chapters one and two is meant to highlight that very thing. Jesus is the sign, the true ruler, the exiled one, the hope in the midst of bereavement, and the true Israel and the true Exodus. He is all these things. And with that kingly aspect in view of chapter 23, it shows how he saves us and how he saves us is by conquering. Isn't that what our king came to do? In fact, the first gospel proclamation is all about conquering the head, the seed of the woman, head will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. When Christ comes, he does. He crushes that serpent's head. Yes, he atones. Yes, he reconciles. Yes, he redeems. And as he's doing that, he's suffering in our stead, but he also conquers. And even in Philippians chapter two, when he became man, he became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. He came for the purpose of dying. He came for the purpose of being that atonement. He came for that purpose of being the one who saved his people. and He does so by conquering the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might. He had the spirit with him as he engaged in his ministry. How does he save? He redeems, he suffers, and he conquers. And all this is to fulfill God's promises and prophecies and what it shows is God's plans come from unexpected places. In fact, wasn't there one who said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He who is shall be called the Nazarene is the one who saves his people from their sins. And if we've been redeemed and saved in him, even though we suffer much now, We know that our deliverer has come, and he is not only with us, but we are united to him, and he will give us all that we need and all the struggles that we endure in this world. But not only will he give us all we need, he also shall come again. There's a now aspect and a future aspect. He shall come again. And the reason we can endure a momentary light affliction is because we know it's not forever and does not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits God's people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as 157 stanza four says, for lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold when with the ever circling years comes round the age of gold, when peace shall over all the earth, its ancient splendors fling and the whole world gives back the song which now the angels sing. Brethren, we have much to sing. We have much to praise. We have much we can thank our God for as he redeems us, suffers for us, and has conquered that we might have life in him. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful again for your blessed triune plan of redemption. Thank you for the plan of the Father, the accomplishment of the Son, and the application of the Holy Spirit. And thank you again for the work, especially of the Son at this time. Thank you for his coming. Thank you for his being born. Thank you for his exile into Egypt. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Thank you that he is our conquering king. And thank you that he will make all his enemies his footstool. And we know that this is a truth that ought to be um percolating and marinating in our hearts always that you're the God over all things. You are the King of this world and you're the King of your people. Thank you that you don't just um, move this world for uh, any willy nilly way, but you do so for your glory, but also for our good. And so help us to appreciate that. Help us to understand that. Help us to see your goodness, even in the work of the son. Thank you that he who is the son is the one who became man. Thank you that he was born of a virgin Mary. Thank you that he was born of the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. Thank you that this was the, to fulfill the law and the prophets. Thank you that in this person, in this one person, there are two distinct whole and perfect natures. Thank you yet one Christ. We are thankful that there is no composition, no confusion and change with those natures. We're thankful that there is one mediator one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Thank you for the mystery that the incarnation is. We're thankful for the fulfillment of all your promises that you've said in the Old Testament and you fulfilled in Christ. Because of your promises, O oh God, help us to know that you shall come again as you have promised. And as we await, you have promised to be with us as we wait. So we ask that you be with us now as we go out into the world, as we go enjoy and spend time with family, give us comfort, give us strength, give us encouragement, and help us to remember what Christ has done for us. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.